the law. That was something outrageous. Well, we continue this week to look at Christ's parables. And the parable that we're looking at this week is again about a dinner party. Jesus gave this parable about a dinner party while attending a dinner party. Uh, So, uh, if you will, would you like to turn with me to page 847 of the Pew Bible, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, beginning at the first verse. We'll just have a look at verse 1 for the moment. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, He was being carefully watched. Now, we don't know what town or village Jesus was in. He is, at this point, on his way to Jerusalem, where where he'll be crucified. And along the way, he's staying in various towns, villages, and hamlets. And wherever he goes, he attracts huge crowds. That's because, at this point in his life, he's incredibly famous. He is a teacher, a preacher, a healer of every conceivable illness, disease, and disability. He casts out demons. He raises the dead. And in his own name, he tells the weather what to do. He is, by popular estimation, a prophet at the very least. Perhaps he's someone greater. Could he be the Messiah, the long-awaited King of Israel? Well, the house he's in is the home of a prominent Pharisee. And again, we remember that the Pharisees were the gatekeepers and keyholders of Jewish life. Along with the scribes and the teachers of the law, they taught the sacred, script, uh, t- sacred texts and all the oral tradition, the beliefs, rules, customs, feasts, and traditions of being Jewish in first century Israel. And Jesus would have been invited as a matter of course, as a matter of convention to the home of the most important man in town. That was a matter of honor. The honor of the village depended upon the village extending the best possible hospitality. And so that was the convention. Jesus was invited by the chief dude. And this convention, although Jesus sometimes flouted this convention, as he did on the day he visited Jericho, that fashionable residence for Levites and priests who live in fashionable Jericho but work in Jerusalem, on the day he visited Jericho, he walked straight through and then invited himself to lunch at Zacchaeus' house, the short guy who climbed a tree, the tax collector. wonder how that went down. Well, by convention, he's invited to the most important house in the village, a public lunch And we notice right out the the outset that although social convention forces this Pharisee to host a public lunch in honor of this visiting preacher, it is reluctant hospitality. This is an invitation, if not with a view to a kill, then certainly with a view to rejection. Skipping down to uh, verse 12 on page 848. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid 
at the resurrection of the righteous. And the Pharisees, they would have got this kind of language. They would have understood because they believed in a resurrection. Not everybody did in those days, but they believed in a resurrection. A resurrection of the dead, that was to happen when the Messiah came. The coming of the Messiah, they knew that was salvation. God finally saving his people fully and eternally. And one of the ways in which they visualized this saving event was as a dinner party. This is how Jesus often spoke himself. As in, if we flip back a a chapter to Luke 13, um, around the 23rd verse, somebody asked Jesus, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you're going to stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you, and and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, you evildoers. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. So Jesus spoke this way also about salvation, but returning to our text in in Luke 14, when one of those at the table with him heard Jesus say this, he said, when when Jesus said, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous, and this guy grabbing hold of this last phrase, he said to Jesus, oh, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Uh, Yes, indeed, how blessed, how pious, how impossible to disagree with such a sentiment. A pious interjection. Perhaps this person was a conflict-adverse Anglican minister with a low threshold for tension and was trying to smooth things over. Unfortunately, and again, I suspect that this guy trained at an Anglican theological college because he is trying, unfortunately, to deflect Jesus' point, all these uncomfortable thoughts about inviting the poor and the lame. He's trying to obscure it. And we might, ha- we might spend a moment thinking about that with respect to, I mean, there's the idea. How about we invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind? So here's the question. Why wouldn't you do that? Well, that's an easy question to answer, why you wouldn't do it. It's because it's costly and it's embarrassing. And as everyone has noticed since the creation of the world, when you befriend the friendless, you lose friends. How much more so in an honor-shame culture, where people are not even going to do business with you. And also, significantly, in first century Israel, they developed many elaborate theologies to justify the notion that such people were under God's curse. You're not going to help them if they're under God's curse. They deserve to be like that. So that's why you wouldn't invite such people to your dinner party. Here's the next question. Why would you invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind? Well, basically, you would because 
such theologies as I've just mentioned, which argue that such people are cursed, are alien to the Old Testament, which teaches, in plain language, God's passionate interest in including the excluded and bringing justice and provision to the poor. I reckon Proverbs 14.31 does a good job of summing up the Old Testament position. Proverbs 31, sorry, Proverbs 14.31 uh, says, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Jesus' point is that even passive rejection of the poor is open hostility to God. And so, so as to not be deflected from his point, just to make it solid, he brings in a parable. And um, the parable's not difficult to understand. We've heard it, we've sung it. Uh, the invitation to a, the great feast is like, it's like the invitation to get to know God, to come into his kingdom. Those who reject the invitation to the feast are like those who reject the invitation to the kingdom. They reject the invitation to become God's friend. And perhaps a little bit like the younger son in, in last week's parable, we, we see in their excuses something perhaps we all painfully identify with, the strong desire to enjoy the good things of this world whilst at the same time rejecting the one who made this world, the one who gives all these good gifts. We want the gifts, thank you very much, but not the giver so that we can be the bosses to what we do with this stuff. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, those in the country roads and, and highways, we recognize this as an expression of God's love for those the world rejects. And the way in which perhaps we all need to be humbled by life in order to be willing to seek the treasure of knowing God. We, we come away from this parable perhaps reminding ourselves not to be distracted by the things of this world, not to, not to be engrossed by them. Remembering that seeking our own comfort so easily distracts from kingdom priorities. And we come away perhaps reminding ourselves to take every opportunity to, to make fellowship of our own dining table at home a better and better reflection of table fellowship in Christ's kingdom. Seeking opportunities to invite in those that the world is likely to neglect or reject. And these are good things. And they reflect rightly Jesus' use of this parable on this occasion. However, getting a little bit of cultural background is going to sharpen up the image for us. I mean, I think it's worth, worth doing that. So, so let's, let's, let's delve in a little bit deeper. Verse 16. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready. Uh, given that the conversation, we know, the conversation's already about the feast in the kingdom of God, so it is safe to assume that Jesus' story is going to be an analogy about the kingdom. Now, for a landowner to hold a great bank banquet was a multi-stage thing. The guests were invited twice. And there are several reasons for doing this. 
One reason was simply that the host would only slaughter either the right animal or the right number of animals for the people who had accepted the first invitation. And it's easy for us to imagine, isn't it? In a world without refrigeration, in a world where people generally had cared personally themselves for the animal that they were about to eat, the thought of killing an animal and it going to waste was highly objectionable. It would be considered very distressing to over-cater with the result of wasted food such that animals died for nothing. So then, in response to the first round of invitation giving, uh, the host arranges for the food and the drink to be prepared, the right kind of animal or the right number of animals to be slaughtered and cooked, etc., etc. And just as the meat is getting ready to eat, perhaps late afternoon, the second invitation goes out. A servant with the message, Come, everything is now ready. And again, a servant takes the message, and those who had earlier accepted are now expected to come immediately, dropping everything instantly. They are expected to literally walk with the servant to the host's house. Now, in terms of working out an analogy, Jesus' hearers would have heard a parallel with the history of their nation, with the history of Israel. Those who had been invited to the feast of the kingdom of God. Who's that? That's us. That's God's people, the nation of Israel. How will they know when it is time to respond? They'll know when the Messiah comes. Then God's full salvation will be made manifest upon the earth, visualized by the prophet Isaiah as a feast of rich food, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. Then the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from every face. Then the Lord Almighty will destroy the shroud that covers the nations. God will eat death forever and remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. So then, as these Pharisees and teachers of the law listened to this parable, when Jesus spoke about those who had been invited and who were waiting for the signal to come, they'd understand themselves to be being referred to. We are the men. We are the guests. Verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. It sounds a bit like only three people have been invited. In fact, we remember that lots of people have been invited, but what we're presented with now is three exemplar excuses to give us the big idea. And what we might not get but it is important to know is that these excuses are outrageously implausible. I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. That's ludicrous. No, no one buys a field sight unseen. In actual fact, fields are bought after weeks or months of, care, of careful and protracted negotiations. And no one buys a field that they haven't carefully inspected a number of times and agree on exactly what is included. In actual fact, in Jesus' world, no one really much buys a field that they haven't known their entire life. To Christ's hearers, this is a joke. 
In our culture, it would be like a young man inviting a young woman out to dinner, reserving a table at a fine restaurant, securing tickets to the ballet at great expense, and then rocking up in his glad rags, knocking on the door and being told, Oh, I'm so sorry, I suddenly have to rearrange my sock drawer. I can't come. Please excuse me. That is the force of this absurd apology. Not only is the host being turned down, but his invitation is being rejected with something so dumb, it can only be a serious insult, even though it is dressed up as courtesy. The second excuse continues in the same vein, but ups the ante. It gets worse. I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Well, obviously, you try out oxen before you buy them, just as we ordinarily wouldn't dream of buying a car without test driving it, or buying a house without inspecting it. So you test out your oxen first, and it takes all day. You don't set out to test oxen at sunset. Like the first excuse, it is absurd and therefore insulting. This excuse is ruder than the first, because the guest has already committed himself and is already on his way out the door. He is going. The servant was lucky to have found him. But the last excuse takes the cake. I just got married, so I cannot come. Now, it's hard for us to hear with Middle Eastern ears, but one thing this man couldn't mean is, I just got married today. Because in their culture, as in ours, marriage feasts are arranged weeks or even months in advance, and no village would have let two major feasts clash on their corporate calendar. They would have worked this out. Besides, he's already accepted the first invitation. What the man must mean, therefore, is that he is a newlywed. Hey, I'm still a newlywed. Now, while being in your first year of marriage did exempt you from military service in ancient Israel, it did not, of course, exempt you from social events. It didn't keep you indoors for a year. And to Middle Eastern ears, this is just basically way too much information. Like, I don't need to know that. The guest, who could have refused the first invitation, but didn't, is being astonishingly crude, as well as rude. We might notice, please excuse me, is dropped, and instead just comes the simple, I can't come. There isn't even an attempt at civility. It's as though you invited your friend to your retirement dinner. He'd RSV'd in the affirmative. There's a place set for him and a card with his name on. And you happen to ring him just a couple of hours beforehand. And he says, sorry, pal. I need to get busy with my wife. Bad luck. You'd go, what? Verse 21. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. In other words, the servant is to go quickly and invite everyone who in the town is beneath the notice of those who had been invited as guests. They are to invite the nobodies, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, 
they just obviously, they're not the kind of people who buy oxen or fields. Most of them don't get married. They certainly don't get invited to dinner parties. The host has, at a practical level, the problem of all this food and drink that will go to waste if he doesn't do something. But a dinner party in an honor-shame culture is all about the giving and receiving of honor. It is an honor to be invited by the host. And you honor the host by accepting and attending. You exchange honors. This host has been publicly shamed, publicly dishonored. His anger is natural. However, his response is not to take vengeance on the invitees. Rather, he makes a judgment and there is irony in the judgment. This host honors those that those who had dishonored him enjoyed dishonoring. And he honors them in such a way that those who had been invited are dishonored at the same time as he is honored by those who can't return the favor. By those who will see this invitation for what it is. Amazing, costly grace that they can never repay. Verse 22, Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told the servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in, so that my house will be full. This is a host on a mission. And I don't use that word lightly. This is a host on a mission. Not content with simply inviting the local nobodies, his servants are sent out in pursuit of alien riffraff the vagabonds and itinerant beggars. Jesus is undoubtedly hinting at something that Isaiah spoke about openly, which is Gentile inclusion in this eschatological end-time messianic banquet. The foreigners are going to get included. Verse 24, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. And suddenly at this last sentence, We catch ourselves thinking, hold on, who's speaking here? Is it the host speaking to the servant or is it Jesus speaking to his audience? And the answer is, of course, yes, both. It's both. In the final sentence, the master of the banquet offers his servant an explanation of his actions. It brings the parable to a conclusion, but as so often with Jesus' parables, the fabric begins to wear thin and we see straight through it. I tell you is one of Jesus' characteristic phrases. This final sentence is Jesus' last comment to his own host, to the man who said, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Although these men are believing Israelites, they believe in God and take their religion seriously. They are in serious risk of forfeiting their place in the kingdom. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. The voice of the host is suddenly the voice of Jesus. Jesus is the host. Of course he's the host. Jesus is the Messiah. But in standing ready to reject Jesus, these men stand ready to reject salvation and eternal life. 
What does this parable teach us today? Well, one of the things this parable illustrates is the New Testament teaching, plain and simple, that those who enter the kingdom of God do so by no other way than by the costly grace of God. It is by the blood of Jesus, dead on a cross, that we are forgiven and welcomed in. He was the lamb who was slaughtered. Just to refer to another analogy, he was the lamb who was slaughtered that God might feed on death and that we might feed on him. We are not deserving. We cannot repay the honor. We just acknowledge the amazing graciousness of our host, Jesus, risen from the dead. So then, those who enter eternal life do so by way of divine intervention, divine invitation, divine will. God chooses. Isn't that wonderful? But those who enter hell do so by way of self-exclusion. It's their choice. They're there because they want to be there. They do so by human decision. It is not God's pleasure or will that they so perish. And as I've been working on this parable through the week, I've been reminded of the fact, the, the thing that's unfortunately universally true, that the fact that, that when people respond to this invitation to enter the kingdom of heaven, and when they respond, they, they recognize it for what it is. It's, it's astonishing grace. It's incredible kindness. It changes your life. But those who reject the invitation universally do so rudely, mockingly, laugh at Jesus, laugh at you for believing it. They're rude and discourteous in their rejection. This parable also reminds us that God expects kingdom priorities to become our domestic priorities. Our table should be like his table. Let's include the excluded, be kind to the needy, defend the cause of the poor. Is this not what it means to know me? Asks Jesus through Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet.